Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. And we're welcoming Shiloh back from a, a hiatus from the, the program. He's filling in for our co-host, Christopher Hurtado, who's uh, out sick at the moment. But this uh, might be serendipitous because, you know, Shiloh, you've got a lot of uh, historical background knowledge on the topic we want to discuss today, which we'll take advantage of and and use that as a baseline for discussion. So what we're going to discuss today is the Word of Wisdom. And maybe, generally speaking, if we expand from there, a contemplative approach to health and eating and the intention involved with any kind of a, a, a diet. Um, so we're, we're going to go into some of that a little bit. But let me start off, since we are talking, at least at the beginning, to draw this conversation out about the Word of Wisdom. Shiloh, would you mind going into some of the historical background of the Word of Wisdom, how it was originally perceived, and maybe how it developed from, from the earliest days? Yeah, you bet. So, you know, the Word of Wisdom is a really awesome conversation, and there are a dozen podcasts and even more articles out there that have been written by people so much more intelligent than I am about the Word of Wisdom, about the history of the Word of Wisdom. And so today, the conversation is, as we talk about the history, though, we want to talk about it in a little bit of a different way than what might have actually been spoken of before. So it's it's not going to be any new history, but at least to speak of it in different kinds of terms as to pull it to more towards a contemplative conversation. Um, because typically the how we view the word of wisdom especially now is not how the church and how Latter-day Saints you know even since section 89 was been given is not the way that we've always looked at the word of wisdom right it's it's gone over a lot of changes over the years and i think what that offers us is well i guess first of all there's a lot of criticisms that the word of wisdom can receive because it went through so many changes and because it took so long to become what it is today, that what a lot of critics of the Word of Wisdom call for is, is they think there's a lot of hypocrisy from Joseph Smith's day all the way down into like the 1920s when the Word of Wisdom really became solidified as an actual tenet of the faith, like a real legitimate strengthened modality of, of, the, of, the, of the faith. So I... I Think that as we talk about the word of wisdom in terms of modality, and we'll get into a little bit about what that means, at once we can kind of, re I don't know if the word is resurrect, but or at least restore the conversation and really take it out of the realms of criticism uh, that sometimes uh, historical context might put it in, and then to see the word of wisdom in, in a little bit different light than kind of how we see it now, because I think a lot of times we see it as strictly a like a commandment that God gave us, and that anytime we go against it, or, or if if we know anybody who goes against it, then you know, then they're automatically sinning, and there's judgments and condemnation and things that go along with that. So it's that God gave us commandment, and now we live it, and and if you go against it, then you're you know sinning. And so, not to really counteract that narrative, but at least let's try to fill in a little bit of the holes about what sin might be in terms of modality, how we create modes of worship, how the Word of Wisdom came about, and then pull that into a contemplative way that we can kind of look beyond the Word of Wisdom into this realm. Because for me, that's really where contemplation and the discussion of contemplation is, is we can talk a lot about the practices, and those are necessary, and, and I think we're going to get into that conversation. But the practices are really pointing to something beyond the practices. It's the, it's this experience that goes beyond you know, things that words can describe. And so to really take it as a contemplative me method and to talk about contemplation of the Word of Wisdom and dietary modes, we want to kind of see what's beyond the Word of Wisdom, what it's pointing towards, and what we're going to try to get to there. So hopefully we can get to that conversation a little bit. But 
as far as the history is concerned, you know, it's, it comes out in the early 1830s and in, in 1832 specifically, um, next to Kirtland, Ohio is, is Cleveland, Ohio, right? So Cleveland is only about what, six miles away, seven, maybe 10 miles away from Kirtland. Um, Kirtland is also situated only about five to seven miles away from Lake Erie. So Kirtland is pretty close to a big, a big city center that's going on and it is, it is growing. And in 1832, there was this really massive cholera epidemic that had swept through Cleveland and it had taken the lives of many people. And in, dur during this time also, and even before Joseph had come to Kirtland, uh, when they moved from Palmyra and from New York down into Kirtland, uh, once the, the people in Kirtland and Sidney Riggins con congregation had joined the church, Sidney Riggins congregation had largely joined into what was, what was this temperance movement. And the temperance movement at this time in the United States was a carefully choreographed movement of, uh, that was st strictly prohibition. Like, like they were trying to get everybody to stop drinking alcohol altogether. And, and so they'd have been kind of infused with Christian narratives. And there were a lot of people in Kirtland prior to the Mormons coming into Kirtland that had adopted this whole temperance way of viewing alcohol. And ironically enough, that temperance movement in Kirtland largely fell apart when the Mormons moved in. <laughs> so as, as all those people came in from, from Palmyra and from New York, I'm not entirely certain if they were the cause of it or if it had already just been dying down. But by, well, we do know that by the time they get there, the effectiveness of the temperance movement had largely gone away. So, you know, we did have a lot of people who were still imbibing on alcohol and, and it had become kind of a little bit of a, of a problem. But... So, so there's definitely that flavor, you know, of, of a social atmosphere against alcohol, against drinking. And so finally, when the cholera epidemic comes along, they didn't know what this was. They didn't know how it was passed. They didn't know how it was created. They didn't, they didn't know anything about it. And so the science and the medicine, it was just, it was, they, they were grasping at straws and doing the best that they could. And, and during this time, I mean, we now know that cholera was primarily spread through tainted water, through sewage, untreated sewage. And so if you were downstream from a town that had been infected with cholera and they dump their sewage in the river that runs by your town and you pull and you drink from that water, you're getting cholera. Right? So this is, this is you know, early 19th century frontier living. This is, how, you know, this is how things work, right? And so you have tainted water sources. And what's fascinating about the word of wisdom, and not to get into too many details, because we can get lost in the weeds really fast. But there's a lot of verbiage in the Word of Wisdom that is taken from a lot of the, the literature detailing and dealing with cholera. So for instance, there's this notice that, uh, that I have that, that I pull up whenever I have this discussion that they used to share widely there around Cleveland during this time when they were having this epidemic. And it says, notice, preventatives of cholera. Published by order of the Sanitary Committee under the sanction of the Medical Council, be temperate in eating and drinking. All right, so, so here we already have that we know that part of what they're trying to ascertain as, as a fix for cholera or to even not get cholera is this temperance of eating and drinking that we have to, we have to be temperate in what we're eating. We have to be intentional about what we're eating. And so this is, this is being spread far and wide. And this is part of the way that th the saints are starting to come into an awareness of, of how they should start thinking about things. So a lot of the times I think here in our, uh, you know, from our 21st century perch, we look back on Joseph Smith and he's like, well, you know, how could, he didn't know any about these laws of health. How could he have possibly have known any of this, right? How could he have known, you know, to be moderate in these things was good? Well, we know that his environment was highly infused with this conversation and, and there was an epidemic just like kind of COVID coming with now. They had cholera back then. And so as this notice continues, it says, avoid raw vegetables and unripe fruit. And this is hilarious because we have in section 89 where it says to eat our, our vegetables to eat our fruit in the season thereof, right? So it's, it's the same kind of concept. To, you know, you can avoid raw vegetables and avoid raw fruit, or you can say, just eat the, eat the fruit in the season thereof when it's ripe. It's the same kind of concept. The, the notice goes on, abstain from cold water when heated and above all from ardent spirits. So there's this idea about the dangers of heating your water and drinking it cold. And so we have in the word of wisdom, this, this hot drinks, and originally speaking, hot drinks literally meant temperature hot drinks. 
And so a lot of the early church leaders, they thought this is what that meant. So they refrained literally from eating any high temperature drinks, which would have included at the time drinks like hot chocolate. You know, anything that was hot, they abstained from because that's how it was. And, and later they kind of bring hot drinks into meaning more liquors and hard alcohols, you know. But, uh, but at the time with the temperance movement and with, an, and with this temperance uh, of eating and drinking came this whole don't eat more than you, you need to and don't drink hard liquors. Right. And so, and so this is, this is very much a time in Joseph's life. And so when, when the word of wisdom comes out, this isn't really like out, outside the realm of what they already know. And in fact, even in the medical literature of the day, most of the medical journals included that uh, as part of the diagnosis of cholera, that in order to make sure that people were healthy, that you could, uh, it, they borrowed a passage in Isaiah that says that you could run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And so you had these, these, uh, these doctors who would go out using this biblical text as their medical apparatus, and they would make people run and walk. And if they weren't faint, if, if they didn't get like a fever, <laughs> they didn't get lightheaded, and they could run and not be weary and walk and not faint, then, then they were healthy. And so it's interesting that this appears in, in section 89, right? That this becomes a way of being able to tell whether or not, uh, this word of wisdom is, is effective in creating these laws of health. But also, I think it's important to notice that while our latter-day narrative in the 20th and 21st century really wants to ascribe meaning to the word of wisdom, you know, because it does say that you know, you'll have health in the navel, marrow in the bones, and, and, and you'll, there'll be a physical aspect to it, the very beginning of the word of wisdom starts that this was given because of the consequences and the evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. So like one of the primary purposes stated right at the beginning in verse four for the word of wisdom was this really interesting caveat about the evil designs of conspiring men in the last days. And I have no idea what that means. Um, but, that, you know, that becomes one of the, the, the apparatuses for why we have this thing. And the blessing of, of obeying it is that you'll, you'll have a certain amount of health. But this was given primarily because there are evil and, you know, conspiring men who are going to try to take advantage of you. So we don't know how they're going to try to, try to take advantage of you. We don't know what that means. Or at least I don't. Well, I think that narrative has been expanded upon, at least through the early 20th century, to be connected to the manufacturers of, of cigarettes and, and whatnot as being the conspiring men, you know, where the, where the commercials and the advertising around that was hey, you need to relax. If you need to feel good, here you go. This is actually good for your health. And then having it ultimately lead to, you know, tens of thousands of deaths. And and so I think a lot of kind of modern day, a modern day interpretation of that was that, you know, this was a very, very forward looking, almost prophetic type statement. Yeah, it it almost seems that way. Um, and, and we can certainly understand that of smoking, right? We can under, we can see that of smoking and, and the effects of smoking. And especially if, you know, in the 20th century when smoking was so in vogue and smoking was everywhere, you know, this word of wisdom and, and this kind of Mormon modality of no smoking really was outside the realm of the normal. I mean, it really was this really bizarre thing. Like Mormons don't smoke like everybody smokes. And so you can, you can see, especially where smoking is concerned, Alcohol, though, is a little bit different because it existed really heavy before and it existed really heavy afterwards. And so there are certain aspects of the of uh, alcohol that have always existed. You know, even with all the marketing campaigns, like my favorite commercials during the during the Super Bowl are all Budweiser commercials, right? <laughs> Those are the ones that I, I remember from my childhood the most, you know, the, the Budweiser frogs and, and all sorts of, you know, funny commercials. And so we can ascribe meaning to these, uh, to these, to these marketing schemes. But the fact is, is we drink less alcohol today than they used to back then. And even with all the marketing campaigns, but smoking is a different issue. You know, smoking takes on a different issue because of, uh, you know, we had to make laws against targeting children, for instance. So yes. Yeah, so, so those narratives kind of do really are highly reflective in some areas of the word of wisdom and kind of less, um, likely in others. But, you know, as we start to realize this though, that Joseph Smith Once this is revealed in 1833, 
you know, the saints, uh, from Latter-day Saint perspective, we, you know, we say that, oh yeah, you know, they, they threw their pipes away, they threw their chewing tobacco away, they immediately renounced all of this, they would never chew tobacco or smoke again. And some of them didn't, but, you know, Joseph Smith still had a glass of wine on occasion. And in fact, even there in Carthage, before he's killed, he has a glass of wine, as as I believe it was during the time when John Taylor sings, the, you know, the poor wafering man of grief and that whole story. So are we to say that Joseph was sinning there in Carthage right before he dies by having an alcoholic beverage, you know, at the time? And my argument is no. Well, ultimately, this is this is where we want the conversation to go. Um, not not trying to parse out the history of who did what and when and why, um, for the purpose of kind of disproving the validity or veracity of this as being the literal word of God. That's that's not our purpose. The purpose is to try to draw, I guess, maybe a a blurrier line, because we want to try to understand the word of wisdom not as some strict health code where that if you abide it, then you receive X blessing, this very conditional if X, then Y type relationship that we have with a lot of our quote unquote commandments, right. even though this was not a commandment initially. But by by somewhat de- deconstructing the the ideas we've built around the word of wisdom that were not the original intention, because as you said, Joseph Smith took a moderate approach to this. Brigham Young took a moderate approach to this. It wasn't until almost really generations later under Heber J. Grant that this was imbibed with a very strict, orthodox, prohibitive nature and became part of the um, the canon of LDS theology whereby one could either receive or be restricted from certain blessings. And so by somewhat going back in time, seeing it for what it originally was, deconstructing it somewhat, we can start then to to get more of a meta picture about what the Word of Wisdom's intent was and how we might approach it from a a contemplative standpoint going forward. Is that an, an accurate way to state that? Yeah, I think that's a really great way to state that because the the point of kind of deconstructing the old narrative is not to point fingers or to, as you said, to really get in. So when I ask the question of was Joseph Smith sinning, you know, my answer to that is no, he wasn't, you know, because for for me, I, I do a lot of studies and kind of where I'm at in my in my own studies is I focus on these things called on modality. And modality is really when we just take any religious observance, literally any religious observance or the modality doesn't have to be religious. It can be secular, but it's literally anything that we have in our lives that we use to pour our intentionality into that produces real life experiences. So for instance, reading scriptures is a mode. Um, prayer is a mode. The ordinances of, you know, going to the temple. Um, democracy. Yeah. Democracy, right? A democracy. It's, it's any, it can be simply an idea. That we have uh, the word of wisdom is a mode. The word of wisdom is just an idea of 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 positive and negative things that we should include in our dietary lives. Um, it, observances that we we impose upon ourselves that produce meaning and produce something in our lives, right? And so there, there there's this thing called you know of strengthening modality and weakening modality. So for instance, in Joseph's day and Brigham Young and John Taylor, like you said, the word of wisdom was a very weak mode of religious observance. They didn't place a lot of emphasis on it. You know, they talked about it. They you know they, they condemned people for not adhering to it, but not really. Um, you know, it was more just like verbal lashings than anything. And it wasn't until the 1920s when they really included it as the temple, as a temple question. And they began to strengthen the mode of the word of wisdom. And they're like, you know what, guys, enough is enough. We really need to take this seriously. And so they started to add more meaning to it. And they started to add more stories to it about what it means and about how, how this is functions and, and the, the emphasis on it, it was a revelation and a commandment and they imposed greater punishments and penalties for it. And then they included it as part of the temple, you know, recommend questions where it hadn't been before. And so during this time, there's this transition of including the word of wisdom into making it more of a central tenet of the Mormon belief tradition. Until nowadays, I mean, the word of wisdom is so central to our belief tradition and our religious experience that new converts coming into the church usually say this is one of the hardest things they have to do, right? To give up coffee, their regular coffee and tea. 
And it's usually the thing that people who leave the church <laughs> end up going to the first to be able to kind of like deconstruct the narratives of, of everything, right? Is first thing that people do when they leave the church is go try some alcohol of some sort or go try coffee for the first time or whatever. And so it just, the word of wisdom has become that thing, but it wasn't always that thing. So my question from a contemplative point of view is why was it not a thing for 80 years? And then how did they make it a thing? And then how did that evolve to be what, what we see today? Is it just a list of commit, just a list of statements of do's and don'ts that we do, and if we don't, then it's a sin? And for me, I, I can be happy with that, but I wanted to push further into it. And so, my my conversations of modality is how it relates to uh, contemplation. Is I've had the statement that sin is anything that weakens the modality of our religious observation and our, our religious observance. So, for instance. In the story of the Word of Wisdom, we have a prohibition against alcohol. Now, if I really want to be strengthening the Word of Wisdom as a mode in my life, I'm not going to go out and drink alcohol. In fact, I'm going to abstain from alcohol. And if in my religious community, as a practicing, observing Latter-day Saint, with the mode of the, you know, the, the whole Latter-day Saint experience is a mode, and there's like these sub-modes of like the Word of Wisdom and prayer and gospel ordinances— but in this thing, if I do something that weakens the modality of the word of wisdom, its importance and its meaning, that is sin. And sin in this context can change as the mode changes. So for instance, let's say that the church comes out and says, hey, you know what? Smoking cigarettes is no longer a part of the word of wisdom. It's no longer a prohibition of the word of wisdom. By definition, that means that I can now smoke cigarettes and it's not sin. Because it doesn't weaken the modality of the word of wisdom, because the story or the, the, the axiom of not smoking cigarettes is no longer a part of the word of wisdom. So then it's not sin anymore. So anything that weakens the power of these religious observances is sin. And so, but the thing is, 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 is Riley, I don't know about you, but for instance, myself, I don't, I've never really wanted to smoke in my life. That's not my thing right? That's, that, that's not my, that's not my hill to die on. You know, of all the things I'm ever tempted to do, smoking has never been it for me. And I know for a lot of people, that was a hill for them that was a really hard one to conquer. For me, never was my thing. So I can be in observance of the word of wisdom by the letter of the law, while having the word of wisdom not really be a strong mode for me. And, and, and largely the word of wisdom really hasn't ever been that much that meaningful to me because like coffee and tea and alcohol and smoking and drugs, I just don't care. That was never in my purview. I, I was never around people. I was never tempted by it. When people offered it to me, I just, I didn't care. It wasn't my thing. And it wasn't even because I'm like, I'm a Mormon and I'm abstaining and this is meaningful for me. I, I just personally, if, if I wasn't a Latter-day Saint, I don't know if I would have done it either because I just really didn't care. So in that way, the mode of the word of wisdom wasn't strong, but it w I wasn't doing it anyway. It was, it was this weird place to be in. Well, and that's an interesting way to look at it because I think what the word of wisdom has become today is exactly what Patrick Mason described as a remarkably effective boundary maintenance device. And so it's there's less contemplation that goes into the word of wisdom today by active members, especially those who have been lifetime members of the church and have never really had any issue with this because it's just their lived experience since birth that they don't drink coffee, tea, alcohol, or take drugs or illegal whatever. So, I mean, for them, it's not a challenge, but that also removes some of the, the discipline aspect of what perhaps the Word of Wisdom was intended to be. Oh, yeah. Because if you listen to the church's narrative about it today, at least, it's less about health and it's more about faith. Well, what faith does it take for a current member who's never been tempted by any of these things to abstain from them, right? And, and so then you could expand the discussion and say, well, it, but it could be much more difficult because it hasn't been an active part of that mode for the last hundred years to focus on, you know, um, eating meat sparingly or fruits and vegetables in the season thereof and all all wholesome herbs and all that stuff. Maybe the active faith for those people would be to kind of dig deeper on the word of wisdom, but because those ones aren't connected to our, um, the perception of faithfulness of members within the church, for instance, they can still have a temple recommend and eat meat every single day of the year if they want, or 
or they can have a temple recommend and eat, you know, celery in the middle of winter. Like <laughs> it's, there's no connection there to those aspects of the word of wisdom. And so much of the contemplative value that there might be for any kind of health code, let alone the word of wisdom, is lost on the current members. And so, you know, from, again, the boundary maintenance device is essentially what it is and little else for an existing member. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good point of view because, you know, like what Patrick Mason said about boundaries, it's, it's this really interesting concept that... Uh, Boundaries really just create minimum standards, right? It's just, it's just we, 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 so long as we're doing the minimum standard that we think we're doing okay, and we never really push ourselves beyond that. And that's really where I think these conversations of contemplation are really so critical because it they call on us to look beyond the boundary to see what the boundary was pointing at. And to realize that it wasn't just about the the rule or as a boundary, or even to follow the rule, and and that's kind of the the story we have to set up in order for us to to even get people to come to the very bottom of the boundary. And at the beginning of the word of wisdom, it says, "Hey, this is this is given with the principle and promise, and it's adapted to the weakest among us." And what that means is like, yeah, it's a boundary, but it's like it's this really low level boundary that you were trying to kind of point people beyond. So why are, are are we getting stuck on trying to figure it out? And and kind of just <laughs> I I know some people and they're beautiful people who, you know, this has never been my chosen mode of religious observance. But man, I can't tell you how many people I know that like like this is this is the central aspect of the gospel in their lives. Like the laws of health and about keeping themselves up and ready and, and how they treat this. Like this is, this is like, this is their, for me, I'm like nonviolence guy. Anybody who knows me is like nonviolence is my mode. That's my jam, right? <laughs> like, you know, that, that, that's my home and where I stay. But I know people who like word of wisdom is their home. That's their jam. And that's super meaningful for them. And it's just not for me. I just wonder if it's meaningful for them only because it's something they're really good at observing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, if it was something that was less less of a challenge for them or less uh, tempting for them to break, would it be something they focused on so much? I, I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that for them, they've always grown up and always lived this word of wisdom. And so it's just easy for them. And so because they're so good at it, that's their jam. It's the hill they die on. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think I think there's a mix because I think there's people who are like it really comes easy to them, and it's the same for me because the mo- things that I have my modality around, some of them come super easy for me. That that's why that's why I love them so much. And I think in a lot of ways, maybe as a culture, we how can I say this? It's not that we shame people who have authentic and easy modes, but it's it's easy to pinpoint people who have become like fanatical about them. And and to an extent I got to recognize myself and say this about myself like <laughs> cuz I got a lot of friends who tease me and they're like here comes Shiloh again, what are we going to talk about nonviolence today? It, it, it's just that's who I am, right? And and modalities become a conversation that I begin to have more and more. And now people are starting to 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 laugh at me like here comes Shiloh talking about modality again. And if it's not that it's the beatitudes. So I I get it. And we do these things, but I I'm coming to a place where I don't think that's an aside. I think that's kind of the point. It's that we find the aspects of the gospel that are beautiful for us. And you know what? Right now, family history work is not my jam. It's like, I'm not opposed to it. It's just if I have, I only have X amount of hours in my day and so many minutes. And so what am I going to do? Like, like what's going to fill my time? It's like, I can't literally do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Podcasting takes a lot of time, right, too? So it's... I think we need to be a lot less guilty if we're guilty of not fulfilling all of these other obligations and modes. I think God gives us a hundred modes, not because he expects us to fulfill or to push ourselves into each one of them, but because he's just giving this really beautiful banquet. And he's like, hey, of all these options, hey, just, just, hey, here's some options, right? You can pick these, don't pick these, go pick your own. 
Yeah, there's the conversation about cafeteria Mormonism, but the other, the flip side of that is you look at it and say God has provided so many ways for us to relate to Him, and as yeah. many ways as there are people, there you know there are different modalities for us to relate to God, whether it's through the priesthood or through the temple or through the Word of Wisdom or you know through through tithing or whatever. Whatever your jam is, that's a way for you to relate to the way God communicates to his children. And I think that's a beautiful gift that he's provided for everyone is just that there's so many ways to relate to God. And, you know, the the whole idea of a cafeteria Mormon is is meant to almost denigrate those who would say, well, this is my jam, and but this other thing is not my jam. The expectation from that conversation is that everything's got to be your jam. Well, that's just not a practical reality. Let's be honest. Right. Um, so the difficulty that we have right now, um, I don't know if this is a criticism within the church, but certainly a cultural criticism is that those who have found their jam, have found their thing, the way they relate to God, their modality, um, and maybe have set aside the things that don't work for them as much are sometimes looked upon as or even treated as a second-class Mormon um, or member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's another modality. And so, you know, there's this, uh, there's this consequence that comes with not being all in, so to speak, versus finding my way to relate to God. And, and so I guess the, the continuation of this conversation about what was meant to happen initially, whether it be with the Word of Wisdom or any other mode that we've created within this church, what was meant to happen was that we were supposed to see the bigger picture of what, what that thing entails. And so that's the contemplative approach, is to look at the Word of Wisdom and say, what is it pointing to? Is it a thing unto itself that we should obsess about, or is there something larger and greater and more important that it's pointing to? And so if I were to ask that question of you, and, and I'll try to answer it the best I can too, what, what do you think that would be? What is it pointing to? Oh, that's, that's such a good question. Um, and I don't even know if I have a really good answer for it because, it, you know, once we try to look beyond of what it's pointing to, all of a sudden, like, language breaks down. It's like trying to, trying to define the taste of salt. It's like it's an impossibility. But, but I think you really brought up a good point there in that when we start to treat the mode as the point in and of itself, we treat the mode as an, as an idol and it becomes idolatry to us. Like for instance, um, and this is kind of a controversial concept. Is it controversial or is it shocking? Shocking? Shockingly controversial. I don't know. But if I were to say, for instance, that the, the sacrament, and this was a realization I had with the sacrament a couple of years ago, was that I was treating the sacrament as the thing in itself. And I was taking my discipleship to the limits of the sacrament and no further. And then one Sunday as I was taking the sacrament, I thought, what is this? Is, is this it? Is the experience I'm supposed to have sitting on this pew, having this piece of bread and drinking this little plastic cup of water, is this the experience I was supposed to have? And then it was like, well, no, this is symbolic. I'm like, well, what's it symbolic of? And I was like, it was symbolic of the blood and, and, and flesh of Christ. I'm like, okay, well... What's that symbolic of? And then I was like, oh, I don't, what's beyond that? And, and then I had an experience, and I've talked about it before, but I had an experience where I'd, I had gone over three, you know, for three days, I was at a conference, and there, was, there were just some things that were done, you know, I said at the conference, and some, realizations, some personal realizations I had about myself were, it, it so radically transformed me, and then I was not the same person leaving it as I was going into that conference. And this voice was like, and I had this voice as I was walking out of the conference that said, for the first time in your life, you experienced what your baptism symbolizes. And I was like, whoa, I got to sit with that for a minute. Because I realized, and, and this gets into you know some psychology, but it's the idea that with every knowledge that we gain is, is a type of death, right? Because when we learn something or become something new, the old us dies. It'll never be again. And just as I, I knew I was never going to be the same person that I was before, there was a type of that the old me had died and the new me had been reborn and I was going to never be the same person again. And that's what my baptism symbolizes, going down into the grave and coming up as someone brand new. And I thought, well, if, if the baptism is symbolic of experiences of 
transforming and coming into a new awareness of ourselves. What's the real life experience of the sacrament? What's the real life experience of all of these ordinances that we do? And that was my first kind of recognition and realization that everything that we do as as a mode or as a ritual or as a rite is not the end thing in itself. And if we treat it that way, that's idolatry because it damns us. It only keeps us in that moment. That doesn't mean don't do it. But it means that now when I take the sacrament, I'm not looking at the sacrament for the thing, for, you know, for the bread and the water and to simply remember Jesus. I'm looking at it to try to come into an experience and an awareness of looking beyond what the sacrament represents in my own lived experience. And the, so that's how I look at all very modality. Specific and it's, it's very expansive. Whereas, you know, we have a very simple experience with the, with the sacrament, for instance, the word of wisdom is it's pretty intense. Like it's, it's a whole section of scripture that's however many verses, but it's long and it has all these promises and conditional statements attached to different things. And, and so it, it just becomes more problematic, right? And in terms of how we utilize it as a tool for us to have that experience, is it meant to be applied you know, as it says, it's not as a commandment, right? It says it's not by commandment or constraint, but is it meant to be applied that way if we're to have this this resulting conditional experience? Or is it pointing to something else, something more kind of basic and transformative? We can read it as being a product of a specific cultural milieu during Joseph Smith's time and say, you know, for this is an example of how you might take um, intentionality around health during a specific time period and apply that as a spiritual form of discipline? Could we do that today? What if we took the model and applied it today versus the specifics then and applying those specifics now? So, I mean, maybe that's one way to approach it is to say what they did back then, what Joseph did in bringing this concern to the Lord, whether it was prompted by, you know, we have this this myth story of Emma and the upper room of the Newell K. Whitney store and spitting tobacco juices and whatever. However that thing came to be back then, is it more important for us to look at that and say, well, the model that they employed of having some kind of dietary guidelines is an important model? And could we do that today? Or should we just simply import the old one into today? You know, I got to be careful with how I say this because if it's misconstrued, then it can be just be like, "Hey, we'll just go do whatever you want to do. You don't have to follow anything," and then go kind of go make your own your own dietary mode. But in a lot of ways, what I what I look at this is as Latter Day Saints. I I have only met maybe five Latter Day Saints in my entire life who actually try to follow line for line this whole thing. <laughs> That's not very many Latter Day Saints of everybody that I've ever known, right? Right. You know, if you know to specifically go through to eat meat sparingly and in the winter or in times of famine, to to use herbs, you know, plentifully, right? I don't know anybody who uses tobacco to have bruise, you know, on bruises or anymore. I mean, that's a very frontier way of looking at it, right? Or but that's to be able the to question, get into- and that's the point: is are we taking a frontier sensibility about you know health? And applying it to modern day because it's been imbibed or imbued with this. I said imbibed. <laughs> that's that's a little bit of a <laughs> uh, Freudian slip there, because it's been imbued with this sense of you know divine investiture, right? It's like, well, this came straight from the mouth of God. Um, well, if it did, why are we treating it differently today than we do back then? And you know, ah, it's just a messy conversation. Well, right, because, you know, at the time, and that's kind of why we deconstructed it with the cholera conversation, because we're starting to find out that, okay, let's say this actually did come directly from God. Well, it's coming through Joseph, and Joseph is a product of his time. And we have a lot of evidence here that the things that are going around at the time, he's talking in that conversation, God speaking to him in that conversation, in that language, and that's what comes out. Now, 
who who really goes out and eats grains and you know all grains ordained for the use of man and of beasts to be the staff of life not only for man but for beasts in the field and fowls of heaven you know we don't have <laughs> this much anymore like how many of us actually have beasts out in the field that we're we're, we're taking and, and oats that we're giving you know there's people who have horses and cows and i know there's going to be listeners who have their own livestock but that's not the standard person anymore right well and the other thing that's come out of this is that because we have so much genetically modified foods today, half of this stuff doesn't, it doesn't even apply to us anymore. I mean, right. there's an epidemic of celiac disease be, strictly because of the way we've modified our wheat that, right. you know, back a hundred years ago, didn't have the gluten content that it does today. And so now we've created, you know, all kinds of junk out of this. And so to, to take and import this, the frontier sensibility about health, even if it was spurred by a conversation that Joseph had in prayer to God, does it apply to us today? And and I guess the intermediary to that is meant to be the prophets, right? Where they come in and say, well, this is the word of wisdom for today versus the word of wisdom of yesterday. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction to make because I think when it actually boils down to it, what it actually says in 89, we can argue that all day long. And like I said, I, I have five people I know in my life who I can go to to be like, all right, well, how do you live this, you know, word for word and line for line? But as far as the church is concerned, when they say, do you keep the word of wisdom? I don't think it has anything to do with eating meat sparingly or eating grains from the field. What What typically they're asking is, do you drink alcohol? Do you drink coffee, tea? Do you smoke or do drugs? It's, 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 like, it's like those things right there. It's like, because, Riley, my life over the last 15 years, <laughs> if you knew how much, how much junk food I eat and how much fast food I eat and how much I go to McDonald's, like I should have bought stock in McDonald's years ago because I would have gotten all my money back. But I just, I, I've spent so much money. And to think that someone who has a, a glass of red wine um, to, for at night is somehow doing something worse or something doing something more against their health than what I've been doing to my body for the last 15 years of drinking energy drinks and doing all these things. Just when you look at it from a health code perspective, like that's just so ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But when we look at this through like modality, not as trying to make sense of the, the laws of health, but as modality and we say, okay, so here's the deal. I don't, I don't do like, I don't smoke, right? That's not my thing. But in the last, I don't know, say six weeks, I have actually taken more control of my health than I probably have in the last six years of my life. And I've been drinking more water. Like, like water has become a central tenet of my dietary modality. So it's like I, I wanted to awaken a sense of the word of wisdom in my life that had been absent and completely blank for so long. And so I started becoming more intentional. So I drink about a gallon of water a day because I noticed in and of myself, this is going to be more information than what anybody has ever wanted to know, but my body sweats a lot. Like I perspire a lot. Like I, I can just get up and go out and, 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 and I'll have like great beads of sweat on my arms. I just, that's my, how I, how I work. And I go through and I perspire a lot of water. And I noticed that I can drink a gallon of water a day and it, it, man, it brings me alive. And if I'm drinking like a gallon to a gallon and a half water, like I feel better about my life and, and like all sorts of other symptoms go away. Now, I'm sure there's a physiological effect to that. I know if anybody who's probably more well, medically well-versed, I probably have a condition that you can probably diagnose and, and help me out. But the thing is, is I've become more intentionality just with, I've become more intentional just with water. Isn't that crazy? And my body, I feel more invigorated. I feel healthier. I feel more alive. And so that has really been more meaningful to me than for all of the times I've ever read Section 89 and have ever had any, any connection to like smoking, which I've never had a propensity to, right? And, and, and I think you had that, you brought that up, was I grew up in Mormonism. I grew up with both of my families having pioneer stock on both sides. Like I was never around it for it to be tempted by it. I never wanted to try it. So it, so wasn't, it wasn't even a, a test of faith, right? Not even a little bit. But here's the thing and I love about what you're bringing up is it seems to me you're kind of answering the question of how we should use the word of wisdom if, if that's a, a thing that you're using at all. But really what you're pointing to is the model of, of pouring your intentionality about your health 
into a modality that you believe is transforming your life. And if we can take that mindset and adopt it in, in, and apply intentionality into the things that we take into our body, all of a sudden that's kind of like your personal word of wisdom. And I'm not saying, you know, we should go around and applying our own, uh, like, you know, be, become making the, the gospel our own in terms of I, I get to dictate what's right and wrong. I get to dictate all of those things, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of agency about how we approach these things, and I, I get that. But to just simply make it in our image is not what I'm, I'm necessarily talking about. What I'm saying is there is a model for approaching the things we take into our body from a mindful perspective. And perhaps that's where the word of wisdom originated in the mind of Joseph as he brought that, that thought or question to God and received an answer. Should we also take that same approach and bring our concerns about the things that we put in our body to God and receive an answer the same way he did? Yeah, I think that's a great way to say that. You know, this isn't a call, and I like what you said there about, you know, because if we're going to participate and be a part of this this gospel narrative and the word of wisdom modality within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints— that's going to mean that we're not going to we're not going to be found smoking, right? We're not going to go out and do illicit drugs. We're not going to go out and do lines of cocaine. I, I think that's how you do it. I've never even been around cocaine. So <laughs> I'm just going to I'm going to throw that out there like I know what I'm talking about when I don't. But we're not going to be found doing that. Um, but at the same time, we can use the pattern of the word of wisdom as saying, you know what? There's a way that we can make what we put into our bodies meaningful and intentional. And as we do that, and we become more and more intentional with, with the food that we eat and, and with how we come into that process, there, there's this experience that, that literally will enliven us. Now, now, sometimes I know, for instance, there's times in my life where I've used food as a coping mechanism to de-stress from life. And in those times in my life, you know what, so nobody better get between me and the food that I'm eating. And that, that just wasn't going to be the time in my life when the word of wisdom was really meaningful for me, right? You know, because after a really stressful day, I'm stopping by McDonald's, I'm picking up a Big Mac and a large fry and a, and a Dr. Pepper, and that's going to be my jam. And nobody's going to get in between that. But again, you're referring but, to like capital W word of wisdom. Yeah. Right? Because you're talking about very specific um, guidelines about what you put into your body. but. And so when when you say that you're you're like okay, I can keep the capital W word of wisdom, but I can ignore the small W words of wisdom as regards the things I should be putting in my body. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm totally violating the 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 spirit of the law with this. Yeah, right. As it were, you know, I I, I can still go to the temple. I I can be a glutton and have a food dependency and still be quote unquote worthy of the temple. You know, if I'm doing, if I'm going purely legalistically here, but you know, if, if I happen to drink a coffee or some tea or, or that, then, then that, that puts me over the mark because that's the way the mode is written in the Mormon church or in the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And so because of that, yes, we keep the, we keep the mode, we keep the commandments of the institution that we're in and of these things, because we can make that meaningful if it's not. But for me, the real meaning, because I've never been drawn with a propensity to do drugs or to smoke, the real meaning came for me when I started to take ownership of my own life. Right now, primarily because I don't eat out as much and I drink a whole heck of a lot of water and I'm, I'm doing intermittent fasting and it's making me feel really good. But the thing was, is that through the time and the age and the sphere that I was using food as a, as a crutch and as, and, and I was that, yes, there are consequences to that. And sometimes it's really sad that there's sometimes that we, we don't get out of those loops and we stay in those loops for the rest of our lives. And, you know, our bodies will just not recover from it. Um, but for me, I don't look at my life as looking at a little bit with a food dependency. I don't look at that person with any judgment because that's who that person was at the time. That mode of the, of the lowercase word of wisdom, that spirit of the law word of wisdom just was not there present for me. But right now it's becoming more aware of it. I'm becoming more aware of it. And 
because I think I, I don't even know if it has so much to do with physiologically, just exactly what I'm doing. It, that does have something to do with it, but just becoming more aware and intentional in my life in this one way, this modality of what I eat and what I, I drink, it's just, it's radically changed in the last like six to eight weeks. And I love it. So one of the things that Chris and I talk about all the time on this podcast, because it really is what contemplation is defined, and that is awareness. And I think what you're talking about is awareness. It's really just coming to to an awareness of the thing that you're doing to your body that is either resulting in a bad feeling or a good feeling, a bad outcome or a good outcome, and bringing some intention and thought and awareness to that thing is a net positive in all cases, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, if there are others and they have food dependencies, you don't have to like completely alter your lifestyle. You know, you just, just choose one thing, become intentional with one thing and make it an easy thing. Make it something, you know, you don't have to give up your favorite things. Just give up something that, you know, it's like, meh, I don't care about that. And, and for me, I've never done good with like just cutting things out of my life. I usually have to do the crowding method where I'm not like cutting sodas out of my life. I'm just filling my life so much with water that I don't think about soda. Right. That's, that, that's how I have to do it personally. And so, yeah, just different methodology and you, you experiment with what works for you. And so when I look at the modality of how the word of wisdom has come about, yes, we do these things for a religious purpose, but when we actually take ownership of these things and we don't keep the word of wisdom at arm's length, or even for me, because for as much as I love the history of the word of wisdom as, as contained in section 89, because of how I've seen it historically evolved so much, I don't personally have so much faith in the line for line words and texts of section 89. Now, I, I, I'm completely okay with the modality of the, what the church has, has put together and constructed with the, uh, the laws of health, with what they call the Word of Wisdom, which basically, as we said, no smoking, no coffee, no tea, no, no drugs, um, moderation. Moderation is not even in that. You don't have to be moderate. You can, you can be immoderate and do that. But yeah, just mostly those four things. Um, okay, cool. But again... Do we just want to stop there? Just like I was talking about with the sacrament. Do we just want to stop there and let that be what it is? Or are we going to try to push beyond that to become intentional to see what's there? And I think that's so difficult and why I can't really answer the question that you asked, Riley, about what are we looking for beyond the word of wisdom? Because I think it's going to be so different for each one of us. But the key to unlocking what is beyond the word of wisdom is to show up with intentionality with that intention to, you know what, today, I, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to make a choice today to, to do this and to see what presents itself and follow up again tomorrow. Now I'm so ADD, half the stuff that I think about doing this, I do it for like two days and I forget about it and I move on. But sometimes it sticks. I've, I've learned to stop being so, so guilty of the times it doesn't stick and to just roll with the punches and the things that do stick, they stick. But I just keep, but I, anyway, I keep trying and the things that stick, I'm like, that must've been what was important. And I just keep going with it. You know, I, I kind of love where this is going because, you know, the whole year that we've been studying Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, and you've been doing your Come Follow Me podcast with Latter-day Peace Studies and, and we've, we've roughly structured some of our topics on Latter-day Contemplation around the things discussed in DNC, but my personal approach to DNC, because so much of it was penned by Joseph, is to look at look at each one of these sections and whatever topic comes out of it, whether it's the degrees of glory or priesthood or word of wisdom, is to look at each one of these as a model and say, what what am, what are we learning from this? Other than the particulars of, for instance, the word of wisdom of not, you know, eating too much meat or you know, hot drinks and all that stuff, other than the particulars of the, that thing. What is it we can learn and apply in our lives today? And and that's the question I ask myself as a, you know, a gospel doctrine teacher, for instance, in my ward. I always look at the scripture and say, what what's the application for me today? If, it, if all it is is just following some, you know, rigid code where I'm supposed to do this and not supposed to do that, 
oh, fine, okay, I can set up a, a habitual pattern in my life of discipline that might lead me to some greater blessing down the road. Understood. But I, I like to look at models. I, I like to look at systems. I'm a very kind of systemic um, learner. And so when I look at the model that's presented <clears throat> in many of these sections by Joseph Smith as he as he brings his concerns and questions to God, that that that's the meta model is that if you have concerns or questions, bring them to God and see what he unlocks for you, right? And then kind of taking it down a notch from there, from that 30,000-foot view to maybe the 10,000-foot view is, okay, let's focus on this one aspect and how might I build a mode for myself that corresponds to maybe God's will as as pertaining to this versus my will and what my my body desires. So when it comes to food, you know, I'm a big sugar guy. My body craves sugar like crazy. And I love what you said earlier about crowding things out because I think one of the best ways I've found for avoiding the sugar thing is to preempt it by putting something else in my body that is better than the sugar thing. And so if my body's really craving a Coke, I'll say, fine, I'll give myself a Coke, but first I have to drink 12 ounces of water. And then by the time I'm done with the 12 ounces of water, I'm not thirsty anymore. And it's like, eh, I don't really want that Coke that much. Or I might take three sips of it versus the whole can. That This is kind of a rambling way of getting to the point that I look at the system or the model that was established by Joseph and I say, what can I learn from that? How can I apply the principle in my life today versus the particulars? Yeah, you know, and when you were talking with, uh, we were both talking before recording uh, about modality, I, I talked about Joseph Smith, and I, I love this one example from Joseph Smith about his uh, his translation process. Um, you know, when Joseph, and I, I've, I've talked a lot about this about the Come Follow Me podcast, but when Joseph first starts uh, translating with Martin Harris, he uses the Urim and Thummim that was provided with the plates, right? So he's using the Urim and Thummim, he's doing his thing. And then after the 116 pages are lost and he he loses his gift and he comes back, he doesn't use, really utilize the Urim and Thummim anymore. But by this time, he was out digging a well and he came across this rock as he's digging a well. And, and, he, and whether or not this rock was imbued with special powers or whether or not it was just he deemed it special and he started to focus on intentionality into it, he used that rock. To translate, you know, he put it in a hat, buried his face in the hat, and translated the rest of the Book of Mormon until he got towards the end where he didn't even consult the rock anymore. And he just stands there and he dictates. And so I, I love this story because it, it illustrates this idea of modality that, you know, God provides us with, God provides us with our uh, kind of a framework in the Urim and Thummim. You know, kind of like he provided the Yerman Thummim. He's like, hey, Joseph, I'm going to give you this thing because if I give it to you, you're going to think it's extra special. And if you think it's extra special, you'll be able to trust it extra much, you know, a, a lot. A, 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 extra much? Is that even a word? You'll be able to trust it a lot more. <laughs> but then Joseph, he gets enough confidence to where he starts striking out on his own and he starts creating his own modality, his own, his own seer stone, his own thing. Until finally, after he gains confidence and it works for him and he's building on it until he doesn't do it. He doesn't consult anything anymore. He just exists his own. He is his own mode. He's his own Urim and Thummim, as it were. He just stands there and, and he becomes the seer stone himself. And, and I think this is a beautiful way of looking at the conversation because like we were talking about before, I, I, I said, well, is, is this the end result? Is this what it is? Is that we just become our own modality? And my wife was actually listening to a podcast by uh, James Finley, who's part of the Center for Action and Contemplation with Richard Rohr, and he has his own podcast. And he has this episode talking about the modeless mode. And just, just that phrase, the modeless mode, just about blew my mind. But I started thinking about it and thinking, you know, is there something where, you know, we become our own mode, but what happens if there's this modeless mode? What does that even look like? What does that even mean? And and at least in part, you know, kind of coming from a Buddhist perspective, when when we finally give up the pretense of the of the self, of the ego, of the of the me, of the I, and we become one with with everything, when when we finally come into this place where there's no difference between me and thee or anything else, you know, then we enter this sphere of like the modeless mode. You know, we started with the Yerm and Thummim. We graduated to something of our own self, and then we, we became the thing itself, and then we transcended until there was no thing to think about. 
Now, I don't know what that final stage is. I don't know what, I, I don't even know how to conceptualize that yet because it's like, geez, words, I don't even know what words can use. But talking about the word of wisdom, it's like God gives us, gives us a yerm and thummim with the word of wisdom. And what you and I have largely been talking about is how to make a seer stone out of the word of wisdom, how to make something of our own creation that means something to us. And I think what we'll eventually find is that through the practice of becoming intentional and, and really bringing in a new discussion, we're going to find that we can stand in our own two feet and whatever the mode of, the, of our dietary health brings us, we'll eventually come to a place where we will become our own mode, as it were. And I don't even know what that looks like with a dietary, a dietary mode, but I think the principle is sound across the board about how we evolve in these things until finally whatever is present for us in that third stage will finally evolve into this modeless mode and we can then just be one with, one with God. So I find that all of the modality conversation really does lead to the same place. It leads to us ultimately being kind of in this Buddhist sense, um, one with one with just everything that's there, and we start to lose that egoistic eye that's is always omnipresent in uh, in our knowledge systems and how we present ourselves to the world. I look at a lot of you know we live in in our modern society. Let's call it the last twenty five years or so has been extremely um, obsessed with health, and, and ironically, I mean you still see the excesses, right? You still see extreme obesity and heart disease and all that stuff. You still see all that stuff. And then we have genetically modified foods. And in many ways, we go the opposite way. But on an individual level, the practical application of what you're talking about with these these modes of the self is that you can talk to 25 people who are interested in becoming healthier and you say well what are you doing right now to become healthier and one person will say well i'm trying intermittent fasting another person will say well i lift weights another person will say i'm training for a marathon like there's so many you know so many ways i'm gluten free i'm vegetarian i'm vegan and it's each person arriving at some conclusion about what is the best way to be intentional about their own health and whether all it is is they took some friend's advice who they saw lost some weight or or they actually brought the matter to God or or they've just been researching it themselves it almost doesn't matter how they arrived at it there's there is some intentionality there and they've tried to create a mode that addresses that intentionality and gives them something to pour it into so that they can then operate and see what happens as a result yeah i love that exactly well, I, I'm not sure how contemplative we've got with the Word of Wisdom specifically, but it's, it's certainly a conversation that I think each person should have at some point, you know, even with themselves, is just to say, what does the Word of Wisdom really mean to me? Is it just this effective boundary maintenance device, as Patrick Mason described, that keeps me, you know, in good cahoots with church leadership so I can go to the temple? Or, or is it something that could truly become transformative for me as a model for, you know, being mindful about my own health? And, and maybe that's the thing that we could take out of it and pay most attention to and say, hey, I can use this as a, a positive motivation to, to do something about my, my health or, or even my faith, if that's the way you look at it. Yeah, I think I I would hope that it's, uh, if we've been able to accomplish anything in the last hour, it's been to just come to a recognition that with the history of the of the word of wisdom and in dealing with that and in dealing with how we interpret it now, you know the the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, and in becoming more intentional in our lives, we can begin to recognize that yeah, we can try to live every line of section eighty nine, and I think that's kind of be, I think that's missing the mark. Um, because that's just not how the church really even administers the word of wisdom anymore. And, you know, and so when you go into a bishop's interview for a temple recommend, that's not, they're not asking if you keep the word of wisdom according to section 89. It's, do you, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do, or do you do drugs? It's, it's, it's like those three things. And, uh, and so like, we know, yeah, we don't do those three things. And it's like, all right, well, you can have a food dependency or be a glutton, or in my case, be a fast food addict and, and be food dependent and have all these things and be totally good. And yet I'm still kind of, like you said, the, the, the lowercase word of wisdom. I feel like I'm kind of violating that in my own life, but yet I'm still, I'm still able to go to the temple. But I think in this conversation, if we can recognize that by pouring our intentionality into 
just this one conversation about our the, the dietary code of our of our Mormon modality, and we really take ownership in our own self, and we start to utilize and kind of step beyond the Urim and Thummim. It doesn't mean that we're going to throw the Urim and Thummim away, <laughs> right? But you know, we start to use our own seer stone, as it were, to create things that are working for us, so we become more intentional with them. That will set us on a path. So I, hopefully we've at least pointed towards something that the word of wisdom was intended to point towards. So we're no longer looking at the word of wisdom as simply just a set of rules that we can haphazardly follow. Or in my case, like you said, there's no trial of faith in, in anything concerning these things because I didn't grow up with any temptation regarding these things. Um, but looking beyond those, those three things in a temple recommended view to really focus our intentionality in our lives and then to see what becomes present until finally maybe we can even go beyond that. But what that third stage of like being our own mode looks like, I can't say what it is for anyone else. I don't even know what that is for me yet, but I sense that there's something there and the path there is through small steps of intentionality. Well, I'll just maybe finish with this this anecdote I, I read in a book by Thich Nhat Hanh where he talks about um, how to be present even at the level of just eating a meal and how much that has meant for him in his in his spiritual practice. And again, what the Word of Wisdom attempts to do is try to connect the things we put in our body with our spirituality. And so maybe this might land for someone. He has the practice of making sure to chew, and this is something your mom might have taught you when you were a little kid to avoid choking, is make sure you chew your food 30 times or whatever, right? <laughs> and But he does it from the standpoint of being in a present moment, like each each time he bites down that maceration of the food and, and the, the grinding of whatever it is that's in his mouth and the, the various feelings and tastes that are in his mouth. And, you know, this isn't something you would do with every meal. So often, you know, we just eat to, to satisfy some kind of a, you know, urge for calories or whatever, and then we move on. But if you want to transform that practice into something that's very present moment and contemplative, one way to do it would be to just focus in on, on the chewing and the taste and the smells and, and the textures and even on maybe the sources of your food. And again, he's a Buddhist monk. So Thich Nhat Hanh is, you know, he's probably a vegetarian would be my guess. And, and so, you know, he's, he's very intentional about what he puts in his, in his mouth in terms of, you know, was there, was there suffering created in this? How was this thing harvested or whatever? And I, just by taking that approach to eating your food, it might reveal some things for you in the process of doing that that become very spiritual for you. So just a call to be more aware and contemplative in, in what we put into our, food, in, into our mouths in the form of food and drink. And if that can become a spiritual blessing for you, well, then great. I hope that's added something for you. Well, we're out of time, and I want to thank our, our guest, Shiloh Logan, for, for joining us. Shiloh, thanks for being here. Filling hey, in for, for Chris. You bet. And we'll, uh, we'll visit with you next time. This has been Latter-day Contemplation, and I'm Riley Risto. I'm Shiloh Logan. Have a great week, everyone.